Welcome once again to the Chapter 49 podcast. My name is Larry Lannon. I'm a volunteer and a retiree. I volunteered to do communications for NTEU Chapter 49, which represents most IRS employees in the state of Indiana. So uh, we uh, this is a production of our local union uh, here in, in, in Indiana. And uh, this is always a very important time of year for Indiana, particularly the central part of Indiana, because I'm bringing in our Chapter 49 president again, Duncan Giles, but this is Indy 500 weekend, and it's hard to explain to anybody who has never lived in the central part of Indiana just what Indy 500 race weekend is like. It really does sort of change the whole complexion of the area, at least for a few days. It certainly does, and it used to change it a lot more back in the the heyday. I always used to enjoy uh, seeing when the uh, news directors were upset or wanted to haze a new uh, new reporter and send him out uh, outside the speedway the night before the five hundred. Oh, I've done that. I got that assignment. <laughs> no, and fun, when we ran out of new reporters, they had to give it to somebody who was least, uh, I think, was was least senior on the, on the total poll. Uh, yeah, that, especially uh, bef- in the years before the, um, and I'm not going to get into the weeds of this, when there was a big break amongst the open wheel racing community in, starting in 1996. Before that, that race, uh, the night before the race, out on 116th Street, Georgetown Road, it had filtered even further out than that. That party was something to behold. <laughs> That's it's, a nice way of phrasing it. It's and a, you know, I've told I've told people this year, it's like, yeah, it's going to be a smaller party. I'm only inviting 135,000 of our closest friends to come out to the Speedway. And this is going to be the biggest uh, event as far as people gathering since the pandemic started. And remember, there's over a quarter of a million people that can fit in the permanent seating of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So you're putting 135,000 people in there. That sounds like a big number, and it is. But if you ever watch the race on TV, you'll see it looks like there's hardly anybody there. And it's exactly. 40% full, and there used to be a huge infield crowd, people that never bought a ticket but just bought a ticket to get inside the grounds and watch. The, well, some people watch the race from the infield. Some people just go for the party. Uh, in fact, they used to have a concert in the middle of the racetrack just for people who didn't want to see the race. They could just go to the concert and kind of be part of the event. Uh, in fact, last year was very strange when the Indianapolis 500 was run with no fans at all. When I watched that race, that 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 was a so – I mean, it was still the Indy 500, still was shown around the world, but it was just a very different vibe. And this year with a 40% seating, that's, that's getting uh, closer. But next year, fingers crossed – uh, there'll be no restrictions, and we're back to the old days, of, and people will be ready to party. So it is race weekend in in Indianapolis area, and that's, of course, uh, we, we represent most of the IRS employees in the state. Uh, many of them live in the central Indiana area, not all. Many live in other parts of the state, but even in other parts of the state, the Indy 500 uh, is, is publicized a great deal. But we'll move off of that as to what is happening as we record this. We record this on May 27th. We're in the late morning in uh, central Indiana time. So let's get to business. And and here's something that everyone needs to to be aware of. Uh, Memorial Day weekend means Monday is a federal holiday. So, Duncan, will this have any impact on when people see their paychecks? 
Yeah, I saw I saw a alert come out about that, and I got it out to all the employees. But in case anybody didn't see it, if you're used to your paycheck hitting on Monday or possibly Saturday, you're probably going to be looking for it on Tuesday just because of the holiday. It's sometimes it'll match up where there's a Monday holiday in the uh, in the paychecks hitting. And they, you know, did want to come out and said, the IRS said, hey, look, it's going to be Tuesday. So be aware of that. So I just wanted to make everybody aware. It shouldn't be a huge deal, but just a big awareness thing. You know, here's the other thing about this. And even I, I go all the way back to when uh, direct deposits first started in the early 80s when I went to work for the federal government. I, tell me if this is still true, because it was true then. It sort of depended on the financial institution that you used as to when your paycheck would show up. Some would show up on that official payday. Sometimes you would get, and that was on, generally on a Monday, as you mentioned, but there were a lot of financial institutions who would put that money in Saturday, uh, but not all. What you're saying is, in this situation, don't expect it until Tuesday. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I do know that some institutions do it Saturday but I would not count on it this time. Okay. Well, let's talk about pay because that's always a big subject. Uh, people are already seeing their pay raise for 2021 for several months, and that was quite a battle. We were able to get a pay raise uh, for federal employees. Now we're looking at the next year, the next calendar year, which will be part of the next budget proposal. The president is just beginning to reveal his budget proposal for the next fiscal year, which is usually, you know, the next calendar year for our pay raise purposes for federal employees. And right now um, we have, we don't know what the pay raise proposal will be from the president. We do have the contours of what he is likely uh, to, uh, to recommend. So where are we at there? Yeah, right now we're hearing that the administration is going to propose a 2.7% raise uh, we've seen in Congress that it's already moving through the House, and we're hoping that there has been a matching Senate bill proposed that it would be 3.2. I would guess that the uh, locality pay would be somewhere around 1% within that. So we'd be looking at a pay raise of uh, 1.2 to um, or. 1.7 to 2.2 with locality pay of 1% thrown in there, depending upon what type of area you're living in. And again, those figures could change, but it's probably going to be somewhere right in that range. So for folks in Indiana, um, excluding around the Chicago area, uh, we're probably looking at somewhere in the two and a half percent range right around that, I would guess. Okay, but it's impossible to know until we see a concrete proposal. And, you know, when the president proposes, Congress has to get involved. So we never know what that final figure will be. But where the president uh, sets his proposal, uh, that that's what that's the starting point for the discussion. So that's a very important thing. And we're and by, many people may already know what that is by the time they hear this podcast, but at the time we record, we, we still don't know. The president still is, is beginning to reveal the details of his next fiscal year budget proposal. I want to talk about something else. I know we have a few retirees who listen to our podcast and even more people who maybe are getting close to retirement uh, at this point in their career. Should be noted that the pay raise and the increase in the annuity for retirees are two completely different systems. The retirement 
increase is not called a raise. It's called a cost of living adjustment or COLA, if you will. It, if, I'm under CSRS, and uh, our uh, annuity uh, increase generally dovetails with the Social Security. I think it's the same formula based on the cost of living. And retirees have not had much of an increase in recent years just because of the formula used to determine that COLA. I just saw a, uh, today Mike Causey, longtime writer about federal employee issues, posted a story today, and it's also available at our if you subscribe uh, or follow or like our Facebook page, you can do that on Facebook at NTEU Chapter 49, Indiana. But uh, that uh, I posted that uh, today, and Mike Causey believes that the retirement COLA, the way the numbers are coming in, can be anywhere from that 3% figure to 4.7%. We won't know until the final numbers are in. That They're not in until, I think, just after the end of September, we'll have the final numbers on that. So it should be noted that how much you get as a retiree and as an increase from one year to another, and the pay raise for federal employees are two very different systems. The pay ra- the systems, the pay raise is a total political issue. It's totally voted on by the Congress, recommended by the president. The final number uh, is determined by Congress, unless it's not determined by Congress, and the president does determine it, uh, if it's left blank, if you will, in, in, in the budget document. So uh, it's good to know that, and I think a lot of people misunderstand how those two systems work quite independent of each other. Yeah, and then you've got the you know the difference between the CSRS and the folks retiring on FERS with the chain inflation um, raise. So it, it it bears watching and looking into, but you are absolutely correct in saying that it is the pay raise and what retirees get are two totally different things. Well, I want to turn to an issue that we have talked about before. We talked about it during our last podcast. We've tried to tiptoe around it. Uh, at this point, I see that there is a chapter president's memo that went out to, uh, to all ch- uh, into chapter presidents uh, in the IRS realm, and it, it really kind of goes point by point on how the negotiations have gone so far. So some of the information is out, and, and, and we, you did talk about one particular issue that just was so radical and, and, and concerns you so much you felt you had a responsibility to talk about it, and that was a dress code proposal from the management uh, in some of your recent bargaining talks. So uh, you still have several issues that are in play, not just the dress code. Now that uh, our national president, Tony Reardon, has revealed some of these differences, I think you're free to talk about that. Please discuss major issues where there are major differences between NTEU and the management on this most important of all contracts we bargain, the national agreement. Yeah, there are still an awful lot of things up in the air. Right now, there um, I'm just going to ballpark at 55 different articles. There could be another one added for 56. They're in the national agreement. I would say at this point that almost half of those are still open and not agreed to. Uh, I think that there's a lot of common ground in several of them, but we haven't been able to finalize uh, all of it. There are parts of it we have, but not all of it. But there are some that are still um, wide, wide, wide differences. Um, 
you know, it, it, you know, some of them, it's almost like an evergreen. I, I could have predicted before we started what some of them were going to be, and they still are. Uh, when it talks about Article 9, about official time, about the time that uh, chapters and stewards are given to be able to help and represent employees, that's always an issue. Um, when it comes to promotions, and um, you know how we're doing hiring and internal versus external things of that nature. That's going to be an issue. Details is an issue. Awards, telework. These are these are some of the uh, greatest hits that we always seem to have. Then always go down to the wire, and they will again this this year. Um, but we just we basically the two sides just try and come with something that that both of them can live with. And, you know, there, there are various interests on the management side as well as NTU side on various things that we want to make sure that employees are protected and management wants to not so much uh, take away employee rights, but do what they can to advance uh, the services, what they see as a services agenda as expeditiously as possible. And so sometimes that might mean um, what they don't believe is infringing on employees' rights, but what we do, what we see as that. So that's that's always where the battle hits and where it's tough to hit that sweet spot. It should be pointed out here. I think a lot of people, excuse me, <clears throat> are not clear on, on the process. The process is pretty painstaking, but just to put it in the simplest terms that I can think of and I want you to do this too, is that even though these issues you talked about, awards, promotions, telework, and many others, there are wide chasms between the proposals you are pre presenting for the contract and the proposals being presented by the management over this contract. Just because you're in wide difference now doesn't mean necessarily that employees are going to have to give up uh, some of the contract provisions that they, they, they think are very important in telework, in awards, in promotions. And we, you know, on, on awards, NTU went to the mat on that and we still lost in the end, but that doesn't mean we're, as an institution, are not going to continue to try. So I say this because the pr way the process works is this is the point in time where bargaining can be very contentious. You're setting up a record uh, of the bargaining going back and forth. And uh, at at a you're going to have one more I think bargaining session uh, that will continue that bargaining, and then when that's done and it's clear what's agreed to and what's not, and where everybody's positions are, that's when the neutral parties get involved, and and that starts the process to get the language finalized. Just explain a little bit to people how yes, there's contention now, but how that might be resolved in the end and it may not be such a bad thing for employees in the end. Just, just kind of give people a feel for that. Yeah. I mean, each party is going to present um, what they want at the, at the side. I mean, it's always um, you're always at one end of the spectrum versus the other. And the trick is to try and hit that, uh, hit that medium. And it's, it's very difficult and, you know, how hard of a stance on every issue that each side takes is is always interesting. Um, you know, we've had several weeks of Zoom sessions. Um, 
and they uh, it, it it's I'm I'm a fan of face to face bargaining just because of the fact that you can have side conversations, you can have smaller groups that can talk to try and bridge those gaps where you don't really get that in in Zoom negotiations. We're going to be um, in June. We're having one last um, almost massive session. Uh, we're going to be negotiating for a week and then um, a few days the next week. So I'll be like spending uh, 11 days in D.C. straight uh, so we can try and get as many issues worked as we can. <clears throat> I'll be home for a few days, literally a few days, and then go back to D.C. for what's called mediation for two weeks, we work through two weeks straight. There'll be evenings, there'll be weekend in there uh, that we'll be working every single day to try and bridge these issues. And a mediator is the same as it would be that you would imagine trying to get folks to come together. Uh, okay, what what can you give or what can uh, they add so we can try and make this work? And it's it's a painstaking process, but it has to be done. So. It's, it's just one of those things that, you know, I, I always enjoy when uh, a manager tries to tell me what's in the agreement and what it means, uh, because it's like, I'm sorry, I know what every single sentence in this is supposed to mean. I wish I didn't sometimes, but I, I know every single why a period is there instead of a comma. Um, so it, it gets to be that painstaking a level because we've got to be able to be have the same understanding once this is done through the mediation process and then the following month any issues that we can't mediate uh go in front of a fact finder who is almost who performs like an arbitrator we'll present ours they'll present theirs and then the um the fact finder makes the decision nobody really wants that because you know you want to try and you're afraid that it might not be what you want so you're trying to come up with the the best of both worlds type thing so we just try and work as many issues as we can in that mediation session yeah and i, th I think it's important to note that uh that fact finder comes in and just looks at both proposals and see which one seems to fit the facts presented so that's why nteu feels it's very important to set a record, a fact-based record of bargaining to, to have a better chance of winning that if it goes to that. But again, if you can avoid fact-finding altogether, that really is better for both parties. That means you've agreed to the language and you're not, take, you're not rolling the dice on what the fact-finder is going to find for your proposal or the other side. So that's, I wanted you to explain that so people understand. Just because you're, you're wide apart on some important issues now doesn't mean they won't be settled in the end. It's just a tough process, and, and there will be a, uh, a, it will be finalized in the coming months. So that was my message. Yeah. And I also wanted to mention that you've already broached this subject. Uh, one, you didn't like Zoom bargaining. I can certainly understand that. But there was a good side for those of us in Indiana. At least we could get a hold of you. At least you were in your office. <laughs> Now you're going to be out of town for some extended periods of time. Uh, so I'm sure that's not pleasant having to be in the D.C. area. I've been in the D.C. area during summer. It's not a pleasant place to be. So it's very yeah, it's hot. Just, it's just one of, yeah, it's just one of those things. And people are like, well, there's so many sites. Well, if you've been going to D.C. for 
you know, like I have off and on for close to 20 years, you've seen those sites. Um, so it's just, it's mostly living in a hotel room and going to meetings uh, for the vast majority of the time. And it's just, but it's something that absolutely needs to be done. And it is much better to do it, as I said, uh, face-to-face rather than via Zoom. So I'm, I'm very glad that management has finally recognized that and is um, approving the travel to go ahead and meet face-to-face. Well, yeah, the pandemic is now to the point where I think you have the ability to meet face-to-face. I don't know. I, I think you're right, Duncan. You know, I spent a lot of official time as a union rep, as a manager, traveling to D.C. It's like once you've been there and you've seen all the sites, it's like, okay, <laughs> that's it. I don't have to come back again. Well, it's not always your choice. And D.C. is where a lot of the players are there. And so it's that's why most of the meetings uh, for negotiations are in D.C. because so many of the people uh, intimately involved and the agencies involved are right there. So there are reasons for that. Let's uh, So again, we'll continue to get updates. And uh, we d- we're not sure about the podcast while you're out of town. We're going to try to work something out, but uh, we'll let you know more about that later. Uh, let's talk now about some other issues, and, and not directly tied to bargaining, uh, but we've just received uh, word that in Indiana, Governor Eric Holcomb is bringing back all state employees back into the office on July the 6th. Now, the rumors continue to abound as to what's going to happen with the IRS, not just within the whole agency, but within operating divisions and microcosms within those operating divisions. What's going to happen with telework? Who will be required to come in? Who will have the option to come in and stay at home? Uh, Will we go back to the old contract language or even people on telework must be in the office two days every pay period? All of that is, is very much up in the air, but the rumors have definitely been flying crazy. So talk about rumors and talk about what we know and what we don't know. And sadly, what we don't know is probably the largest segment of, of the whole thing. Exactly so. Yeah, I, I continue to get rumors that, you know, we're going to be coming back on this date or we're going to be coming back. I know we're coming back by October 1st. I know we're coming back by September 1st. You know, I keep asking, okay, are we also going for the Jade Monkey at midnight? You know, where where do the rumors stop? Um, It's right now, there has been nothing official or even unofficial on dates on when they're looking to call people back for call sites, for the field, for any of that, or how that's going to be done, or going to field appointments, things of that nature. None of that has been decided. So when when you hear people tell you, I know we're coming back on such and such a date, unless you're in field assistance and you've already, you know, you were called back just a few days ago, that is absolutely incorrect because there has not been any decisions made on when that's going to be happening for the IRS. One thing that happened a lot, and this goes way back before we even had uh, telework to any great extent, um, when someone was nearing their retirement age, uh, management, if they knew they had someone with a great deal of expertise 
and maybe the person's willing to work a little longer under the right circumstances. Management would uh, would give them an assignment they liked. I remember one, uh, they used to call them tax auditors or TCOs now, tax compliance officers. But I knew some tax auditors because I worked in that part of exam for a couple of years. And there was one lady nearing her retirement, excellent employee, knew everything inside and out. And when she neared retirement, she sort of let it know, I'd kind of like to go classify returns at the service center in those days. And there was always work to be done for classifiers who knew how to classify returns. So lo and behold, she was able to get a detail to go. At that time, it was in Cincinnati. We had a processing center there. And she would go to Cincinnati, and she would classify returns. She loved the work, enjoyed traveling to Cincinnati. It was a place she liked to to go to, to uh, spend time there. And for a year or two past her retirement age, she was able to classify returns, gave the IRS great service, did a good job, and uh, she you know, eventually retired, but she put that retirement off. Tied into this whole coming back into the office thing, I'm wondering, Duncan, in today's IRS, will the IRS look at that and say someone's near retirement now? They must say they're even eligible to retire Will IRS, how will they look at requests for those people just to work from home for the remainder of their time if they have special expertise? I would have to think most people have worked at IRS near retirement age. They have a lot of experience and expertise at this point if they're eligible to retire. How do you think management's going to react? Will they be willing to give these people assignments, particularly as it applies to their ability to work at home? I'm, I'm wondering about that. Just from what you have seen as a chapter president, uh, what do you think are the possibilities of that? I think this is a very interesting question um, because there, I can tell you that management is very concerned, and rightly so, that the vast majority of employees are eligible to retire in the next five years. And they're worried that even if they do a large amount of hiring, which the president has proposed that the commissioner wants to do, that, you know, NTU national president Tony Reardon has gotten behind absolutely as well. Who's going to be able to train these people? Who's going to be able to, you know, pass the knowledge on that sort of thing? So it's, it's very concerning to everyone to be able to do that. Now, things like telework are going to be um, guided by what's in the agreement, what's agreed to, what the final language is on how often, uh, who's able to do it, how often you have to come in. But are there going to be different types of assignments they may be able to give people to try and have them stay long enough to pass along uh, some of their knowledge? I would hope so. And I think management is looking at that as well. Um, within the confines of what the contract has now and what the contract will be in the future to be able to do that. We don't know exactly what forms those will take, but I do know the discussions have been, high-level discussions have been ongoing, not just in our contract negotiations, but between uh, the commissioner, the deputies, folks in the Treasury Department, and folks like Tony Reardon, our national president, and Jim Bailey, our national vice president, to try and figure these types of things out because that is definitely going to be needed. Interesting. Uh, so there is some hope that maybe there'll be some recognition of that. I got to tell you, Duncan, I've been retired for almost 10 years, over nine years now, and I received uh, a feeler to come back and be an instructor, which really was a surprise to me. Um, 
of course, once you do all the adjustments for your annuity and everything, it, it doesn't really amount to a lot of money. And I, I uh, although I love teaching, it, it is hard work, and I, I thought I'd better stay retired and stay with my volunteer work, such as what I do for you. But there's clearly, uh, at least as it comes to being, uh, when it comes to being an instructor, a classroom instructor, or and or an on-the-job instructor, IRS has already been doing that, right? Yes. Yeah, they have been reaching out to uh, retirees to do some instructing. I think that that is going to be uh, part of the wave of the future. But, yeah, there are a lot of current employees who have great, vast amount of knowledge that would like to do that as well that haven't been able to do it just because of the fact they say, we'd love to have you instruct to pass along this knowledge, but we can't take you off of the casework. So there's there's got to be some happy mediums to be hit there, and that's what these discussions are based upon. I want to end up our discussion today with a story I saw in the Federal Times, which I also posted just so you know if you want to read it for yourself on our Facebook uh, news feed. Again, if you want to like or follow us on Facebook, go to NTEU Chapter 49, Indiana, and you'll get all this information. But this Federal Times story, it brought back some memories for me because it talked about this gray area of federal labor relations. And I saw it happen during the Clinton administration when, when President Clinton sent out an executive order on, on, on partnerships between unions and management. I, for a portion of that time, I was vice president of the chapter and was sort of made the point person on partnership and what we then called a total equality organization program, all these things that were tied into that partnership. Uh, I was heavily involved in that. And it seemed that to me that the management was serious to an extent and then it started pulling back at certain points about involving the, the union in what's called pre-decisional involvement before decisions are made, getting the union involved in the front end rather than the back end on negotiating and taking legal actions and that kind of thing. Well, now that President Biden is encouraging agencies to form these, these committees with management and union, I, uh, there's always some way certain managers, not all, but certain managers, certain agencies, that there's not a, a monolith on this. They all handle it differently. But they always try to find, and this is the the bulk of what the story's trying to say, there's always been this gray area of labor relations where management always leans on a certain language in the statute to say, well, yeah, but we can still do it because of this statute language. Now, particularly during the pandemic, that's been defined as an emergency, which does give management a lot of authority it would not have had uh, had there not been a pandemic, for example. I'm curious about you. I mean, I, I thought about those days in the 90s when the Bill Clinton executive order, uh, when um, basically agencies were instructed to do this, and they did it to a certain extent and then started backing off at a certain point. Are we seeing history repeat itself? or what? How do you look at this uh, with that history in mind? I think the Biden administration is very mindful of that particular history and are going to be um, what we're hearing and what we're hoping is a little bit more forceful in nudging the agencies towards that. And what I've heard from managers over the years is, you know, NTU is trying to co-run the agency or, you know, do this or something like that. Absolutely, positively not. Management has the statutory right 
to do many things. And that includes running the agency, assigning the work, things of that nature. But it is so, so, so much easier on everybody when there is pre-decisional involvement going on. When we can sit there and say, you know, this is not the way that you want to do it. I understand what you're trying to get to. You may want to try doing it this way. It would be better for you. It would be better for the employees. And it wouldn't cause so many problems later on. Because if we don't get that pre-decisional involvement, if we don't have those, uh, for lack of a better term, partnership or whatever term you want to apply to it, uh, those types of meetings, discussions, common interests, then what happens is, is management decides something unilaterally and NTU, either locally, nationally, or both, is forced to file grievances, sometimes unfair labor practices. And it just costs everybody a lot of time and a lot of money for something that could have been solved so much easier up front. As an example, I was in a uh, discussion with a group I was in that I've been with for five years that mainly consists of managers. Um, well, I am the only bargaining unit person on this team. And it was talking about possible questions that we could use in the future for FEBS. And I was just pointing out to some of them, it's like, that question makes absolutely no difference to bargaining unit employees, and most managers wouldn't care. And it was a lively, it was a very good discussion that we had around it. And by the end of it, there were, you know, many people on the, the discussion were like, I understand exactly what you're saying. And that's what it is. It's like, let us give you this point of view, because many times management will come up with an idea at a 30,000 feet type level. And it's like, that's great for up there here on the ground. That's theoretical. And that's not going to work. And here's why it's not going to work. And the more that we can have those types of discussions early and often, whether it's nationally or locally, the better off everybody is. Well, you know, Duncan, I can I can go back to my days uh, as a union <laughs> official. I can also go back to my days as in management. One well, of the hardest things you have to do is tell somebody their baby's ugly. And, <laughs> and you just uh, explained how you did that. And I had to do that a few times, too, and it was never a pleasant experience. Well, we're, I, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm quite well known uh, for doing that. I, it's just one of those things that they have to, they have to hear that. And, and I've done that with commissioners on down that, you know, that this isn't going to work. This is why it's not going to work. And I'm sorry if somebody is telling you it is, but they're too far removed from the actual work to know that. Well, Duncan, I hope you enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. I know you have a lot of work ahead of you. This is going to be a very busy summer for you, and we are obviously leaning on you to keep us apprised of, of what's going on with that very important uh, national agreement bargaining. Any message uh, for all of us uh, as we wrap this podcast up? Uh, first off, I am just honored to represent um, the employees for the state of Indiana and to be on teams where I represent you know, NTEU to try and all I, all I ever want to do is try and help employees and make their life better. That's truly what I always try and aim for. And that's, that's always my mindset. The second thing I want to mention is because of the upcoming holiday, um, you know, 
this is, you know, our, our fathers are both veterans. Um, thankfully, neither one fell in battle, but there are an awful lot of people who have relatives who um, have lost their lives defending our country and defending freedom across the world. And on this Memorial Day holiday, I hope everybody just takes a moment to think about that and silently or more overtly thank them um, for the sacrifices that they've made. Uh, well said, Duncan. I think that's very true. And the Memorial Day is always a very important holiday, with especially with the Indy 500 being a big part of uh, Central Indiana's weekend. Uh, when Monday comes around, uh, the focus changes to Memorial Day celebrations uh, all around our area. So I would encourage people, if you're able, go out and, and go to a local uh, commemoration of, of Memorial Day. Duncan Giles, thank you so much. We'll be back with you next week if all goes well. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Chapter 49 podcast. If you enjoy our podcast, please spread the word. You can find it on just about any platform where you find podcasts. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, TuneIn. They're just all the different uh, types. You can And you can find these podcasts by just searching under Podcasts by Larry Lannon, L-A-N-N-A-N. You'll see a lot of my other podcast lines. I produce a number of podcasts, but just look for the Chapter 49 podcast. So once again, we thank you for listening. We wish you a very good Memorial Day weekend. If you're listening on or before that weekend, I know you listen at various times, but we certainly hope you have a very good time during your time off, and we hope you all will be safe and be kind. <laughs>